0: Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hello and welcome to Self-Improvement Atlas, the Personal Science Insight podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of Life Management Science providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Aditi Kutti. Let's get on with the show. Welcome back to Self-improvement Atlas. Today, we are going to talk about personality assessments, um, all the different personality assessments that are available, um, how accurate are they, how do they compare with each other. And to chat with me about that today, I'm here with a clinical associate professor, Neil Jayasingham, Singham, um, who is a psychiatrist, psychotherapist, and psychodynamic psychotherapy supervisor at the University of Sydney. Uh, professor Jayasingham, Singham, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you for having me
0: um now i've given you a brief introduction but do you mind uh for the benefit of our audience uh just telling us a little bit about uh yourself and what you do uh
1: certainly so i'm a former research scholar of the institute of psychiatry in sydney and the institute of psychiatry at uk uh i completed my medical degree and my psych training in sydney completed advanced training in the Maudsley in london uh, i hold a double masters in psychiatry and in business and health administration and I have about uh, 50 publications in phenomenology, personality disorders, psychotherapy, generally things beginning with P. Uh, in public practice, I'm the area clinical director for mental health services in a regional centre. I'm a foundation accredited member of the Royal Australia and New Zealand psychotherapy faculty, uh, clinical associate professor with Sydney University, former chair of the Faculty of Old Age uh, Psychiatry uh i became interested in personality from a very early stage in my training as a registrar and working with people particularly with personality disorders and completed my master's thesis on personality disorders in older adults uh, which has been referenced for the dsm-5 in terms of evaluation of the applicability of personality disorders therein and uh, find it a fascinating and complicated area that has changed remarkably in the last 20 years and continues to change. And, uh, very happy to talk about this.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel like with all of those, um, uh, qualifications under your belt, we found the right person to chat to. Um, the DSM-5, from what I understand, has only been around uh, about two decades or just a bit more then. Uh, mm-hmm. So I assume since that's come out, a lot of things have had to change um, in how we view personality and how we do mental health disorders in general, but especially personality disorders.
1: That's uh, that's that's correct. And it's also not correct um, because okay. the uh, there has been... We we've had an idea of what personality is for centuries, if not more. Um, particularly coming from the ancient Greeks, uh, talking about people with sanguine, choleric, and melancholic philosoph um, uh, personalities, and uh, from uh, high school English studies on Shakespeare, most of us cut our teeth on personality assessments by trying to work out why Hamlet doesn't bother to do anything until the final act, and the. But when it comes to things like personality disorders and how we actually define a personality, there's been some individual personality disorders which really haven't changed very much. Uh, My favorite thing about the DSM-5 is, behind the scenes, there were so many arguments between the practitioners who were designing DSM-5 in terms of updating the personality disorders from DSM-4 to DSM-5. I mean, they actually had some great ideas. They had the idea of creating dimensional variables and. trying to bring it back towards more psychodynamic interpretation of the different personality factors. Um, After more than a year of debate, they gave up. And the entire DSM-5 personality disorder um, chapter is identical to DSM-4, but all of their debates and arguments they put into section three as the for further research slash argument section of the DSM-5. So yes, a lot has changed and a lot hasn't.
0: Wow, I love the idea that it's just after almost a year of debating they kind of just had enough of the discussion and tabled it for another time.
1: I know a lot of academics, I know a lot of psychiatrists, they're very good at arguing. You get a bunch of yeah. academic psychiatrists, that's a whole new world.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I, I'm excited to see it one day. Uh, hopefully, I'll be present in the room <laughs> when one of these debates are happening. Um, but I think uh, before we kind of get into um, talking about that in a bit more detail, uh, we've got a section called Have You Met um, Dr. Neil J. Sikkim? In which uh, we, I asked you a couple of questions um, and all, there's no wrong answers. They're all about yourself. All you mm-hmm. have to do is answer them. Are you happy to go through that?
1: Yeah, sure. Go ahead.
0: Fantastic. Um, so what is uh your favorite book?
1: Uh, that would have to be Momo by Michael Ende. Uh, okay. a fascinating uh text uh, from the uh, 1980s, a uh, a children's book that is actually a parable for modern society, uh, wrapped up in uh, clinical reasoning.
0: Fantastic That's I haven't read that book myself But that's another one To add to the book list Um, What about a movie? Do you have a favourite movie?
1: That would probably Have to be King of Kings Um, The uh, The uh, The the visual depiction Of the Life and crucifixion Of Jesus Christ I uh, Christian films Vary a lot A huge amount In their quality Um, Mm -hmm. This one I particularly like Because It's quite sensitive And Um not overblown, but deal with the story in a matter as respectful, but also um, as accurate as reasonably can be put.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Cool. Um, do you have a podcast that you've been listening to lately?
1: Um, apart from this one, no, not yet. <laughs> I'm a bit late to the podcast game. Um, right. I understand that there's this entire technology called the internet, uh, which has turned up reasonably while I was writing. Um, so, yes. Um, um one of the things that i'm grateful for uh, for speaking today is to um get used to the idea that there is this whole world of information that i haven't really noticed
0: yeah i uh, sometimes podcasts are not everyone's thing because sitting down and listening to something is with with nothing else to do could be a bit it's not really for everyone, so I do understand it. But I'm glad that you listened to this one at the very at the very <laughs> least. Um, what about a famous role model? Did you have one growing up or currently?
1: Uh, that would still probably... That would have to be... It's split between two, between Michael Ender, who wrote Momo, and who, by the way, wrote uh, The NeverEnding Story, which you might be more more familiar yeah. with, uh, as well as uh, the late, uh, great Sir Terry Pratchett, uh, remarkable fantasy novelist um, uh, from, uh, from England and uh, author of I think one of the uh, greatest humanistic um, science fantasy books of all time.
0: Yeah, Terry Pratchett is such a wonderful author and um, it's a shame that uh, he left us so early. I think it's uh, so much more I'm sure there was to give from um, okay. him. Um, what about the last course that you completed?
1: The last one that I did was a what uh, which was that um, that was a an up that was an update uh, regarding uh, uh, regarding transcranial magnetic stimulation. Um, I do a fair bit of um, I, in addition to psychotherapy. I do a fair bit of uh, stimulation-related work in electroconvulsive therapy, in particular. Uh, Transcranial magnetic stimulation I find quite fascinating because it has actually been around for decades, but there has been a lot of progress in its uh, applicability and indications more recently. Um, So yeah, that would have been my last one.
0: At the risk of derailing this entire show, what is transmagnetic? Is it cranial stimulation? Am I getting it right?
1: So... Transcranial magnetic stimulation actually came about when uh, some individuals discovered that their depression was getting better after they had multiple MRIs. And it's the issue that applying a rapidly alternating magnetic field was associated with improving uh, mental health, specifically depression. And it doesn't involve uh, anesthetic. The problem for ages has been extremely low success rate of about 20 to 30%. More recently, this has gone up to roughly 40 to 50 percent, and it is not as good as electroconvulsive therapy, but it looks like it may be as good as antidepressants or even better um, and is potentially the next phase of um, mental health treatments.
0: That is really fascinating. As someone who's personally dealt with depression in the past and has dealt with it chronically, um, that's really fascinating to me. And I wish I like I want to bring you back on another show just so we can talk about that because that that sounds really fascinating. I'd love to know more. Uh, but our show today is about uh, personality assessments um, mm-hmm. and how various personality assessments compare. Um, so we might uh, kind of hone in on that. Starting really broadly, our show is about personal development. Um, yep. So I wanted to ask you, how do you define personal development?
1: So I think the Greeks again got it right with eudaimonia as an older word, which is so old that no one exactly knows what it means, but roughly translates as flourishing. And it refers to the process of choices and life decisions that lead towards something which involves growth, satisfaction, happiness, a lot of things, but not any one of those in involved. So personal development is basically the pathway towards eudaimonia, uh, towards understanding oneself, understanding where one fits into the universe, and uh, going on towards uh, improving oneself uh, for the purposes of achieving that. Eudaimonia is interesting because it has the word and the sensation of the term gross bound up inside the term. Um, So it's not just about happiness. It is not just about yourself, for example. It is about something that leads towards growth of the individual, uh, which is what I see personal personal development as being about.
0: Absolutely, no, I think that's a beautiful answer. Eudaimonia is a word I haven't heard in a long time, but um, for sure flourishing, I think is such a great way of looking at it. Um, what do you feel are the main challenges in personal development?
1: Well, one of the biggest difficulties is the impossibility of, well, there are two major problems. One of them is the impossibility of knowing yourself as well as the impossibility of knowing other people. Uh, as in a, so In terms of the impossibility of dealing with other people, that's simply due to the issues that language and communication is imperfect. We can never know each other's minds. In terms of understanding ourselves, that should be an easier task, uh, but it's not actually that straightforward. Uh, for example, as I'm talking to you right now, I'm absolutely certain that my forehead is not that big, and I'm sure that my clothes don't fit me that bizarrely. Um, and if I were to play back this video, I'd be very certain that that's not my own voice. That's all because the challenge of actually understanding oneself is not a straightforward task. We think we know who we are, but most research identifies that we walk around with a exaggerated and um, uh, sanitized version of how we actually come across towards other people. Um, the the a number of studies have found that the average person does not consider themselves to be of average intelligence, and we often assume that we are much better than we should be. And that is uh, human, that is understandable, but it's also a challenge because the idea of personal development is to recognize that you are flawed and to recognize that you have failings and inabilities, which is a, a difficult thing to do because it interferes with that sense of safety that keeps you functioning where it is. In order to be able to develop, you need to recognize where you have failures and to see these as potentially surmountable tasks.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And do you, I guess going off of that, do you feel that perhaps, is there an end goal in sight to you in personal development? Like is there something we should be aiming for or is it just kind of the constant incremental growth?
1: Uh, I believe it's certainly constant incremental growth. Um, the uh, and it's a it's it's an interesting uh question about what are we supposed to be doing all this for uh ralph Waldo emerson considered that it was necessary for us to continue to develop but also felt that we would never reach our potential so if we can never reach our potential why should we bother um and the answer is because um we the goal isn't to reach our potential uh the goal is to head towards that um no one none of us will ever reach our potential even if we started from birth but even if you don't get there um heading towards something better than who we are now, it's still going to be pretty darn good. Um, the old phrase, shoot for the moon and you might land on the roof. The, there are a number of things that I'm doing now that I did not think were possible beforehand. But as a result of a, a combination of uh, practices for self-reflection, as well as a significant amount of bloody mindedness and false confidence, uh, has led me towards this point. But uh, I, don't, uh, I don't say that lightly. Um, that is also part of the process of personal development. Uh, recognizing your own personality flaws and how you come across to other people, uh, even if they may be hurtful, even if they may be painful, is a really important part of uh, maturation, uh, growth, and living a better life.
0: Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess kind of focusing it in on our, our topic for today, which is uh-huh. personality. Yep. Um, how do you define personality?
1: So, personality relates to the pattern of how we relate to others and to themselves and to other people uh, and to ourselves. Um so it's really about uh, communication, interpersonal uh, relatedness. Modern psychiatry uh, tends to include elements of cognition inside there as well in terms of evaluating what a person's personality is but most of it is in terms of our emotion focused patterns of how we uh, respond to ourselves and towards other people. The distinction needs to be made between that and temperament. Uh, Temperament is regarded as a fairly uh, consistent pattern of engagement that turns up in uh, early adolescence, uh, late childhood and is roughly consistent all the way through a person's life with personality being a slightly more fluctuant feature. There's a flow on between temperament and um, and personality with a lot of common features. So, for example, introversion versus extroversion, which is a very commonly uh, cited thing, some some authorities think about introversion and extroversion as more likely related to temperament uh, rather than personality. Essentially, it is about how we relate to others.
0: Mm, so your personality can fluctuate depending on the situation you're in, on who you're interacting with. Is that correct?
1: Uh, not, not necessarily. Your personality okay. is going to determine how you respond in individual situations, but your personality right. can fluctuate over your entire life course. Right. Um, if I spend a lot of time around extroverted people, they are either going to inspire me or, or, or repel me and my personality traits will develop accordingly. If I take a lot more risks um, and push myself outside of my comfort zone, my comfort zone will change, which will lead towards uh, a change in my overall personality as well. So the the things that you do, the people you associate with, these will mold yourself and change the way that you behave, and that's how personality does change over time.
0: Right, right. And is there kind of a is there a point of time where your personality is developed, or is it a constant state of flux throughout your life?
1: So we used to think that it stopped at about age 18. So we used to think that, and that's why inside the, the DSM, all the personality disorders um, are noted as uh, de- depending on on starting in late adolescence and uh, cemented through early adulthood. Um, there is some neuroscience behind that. Uh, we know that um, the final stage of uh, brain maturation in terms of laying down the higher cortical uh, pathways, Purkinje fibers, are... Uh, it, that that whole phase is roughly about 15 to 25. And we used to think that once you get your personality there, that's about it. Doesn't change, stays the same. Uh, we used to think that for not only personality, but for personality disorders as well, uh, which is why personality disorders historically were those conditions that can't be treated. We now know that's not at all true. It's just the, the brain does continue to change. Uh, it just changes really slowly. There's very rapid change in adolescence. There's it takes roughly about two years for your brain to change um, after uh, after that rapid phase of development in adolescence, but it continues throughout lifespan. Uh, so right. the there is uh, and this is a this is a very important uh, context because people believe that as you get older, you you lose the ability to learn, you lose the ability to progress. Uh, you don't. All the research shows that. What makes you lose the ability to learn and lose the ability to progress is believing you can't progress. Um, right. The social norms telling you that an old dog can't new trick, can't learn new tricks is a big reason why we have so many older people retiring at 60 and not taking up uh, education courses, not bothering to progress themselves anymore, because they reckon that that's it. So you're, uh, you have a capacity development uh, from, the born that you, uh, from the day that you're born through to the day that you die. Um, that never changes.
0: Right. Um, you mentioned, you know, the, the difference, the distinction between temperament and personality. Yep. Um, and you, you referenced, you know, extroversion, introversion. Um, what about the things that we colloquially refer to as personality? Where, where does that fit in? Is that actually considered personality within um, the study of psychiatry? Is it more mm-hmm. temperament? Is it pseudoscience? Like where, where, what would you classify it as?
1: So the things that we talk about uh, generally in, in 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 general culture, I'm saying um, saying um, that 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 person is so grumpy, that person is so distempered, um, that person is such a party animal, those things are likely to be way more accurate than anything the psychiatrists and psychologists can come up with, because those come out of social interpretation of behavior compared to social norms, uh, which means that those tend to be really accurate. Um, so. The way that other people view us is far more uh, accurate most of the t- of the time than any of these pen and paper uh, tests. That doesn't that doesn't remove the value of the pen and paper tests. Uh, they they were designed and have very useful applications in different settings. But uh, what other people think about us is, is probably the most accurate form to telling what our personality is, as much as we may not like it.
0: Mm, no that's that's a really good point I think that's really enlightening and that um, it also lends to what you were talking about earlier and that sometimes it's very difficult for us to perceive ourselves and who we are and yep. and seeing how other people perceive us can enlighten us a lot better um, as to either where we need to improve or just kind of teach us more about ourselves mm-hmm.
1: so when I uh, at a at a previous location when I became a um, Clinical director of a of a hospital. Um, I was uh, provided with an executive coach, uh, who was her role basically was to help me with my uh, career development and working within that particular role. And as part of that, I had to go through something called 360 degree evaluation. So this is a very common thing that happens at the executive level because. Conflicts in workplaces happen all the time. They are very commonplace things. Conflicts at an executive level are particularly disastrous for the uh, service as a whole, hence the use of organizational psychology coaches. And the 360 degree assessment, um, it did include some pen and paper tests, but the most important part of it was an anonymous feedback portal at which my colleagues were all invited to provide anonymous feedback regarding what they thought about me. So, that is what is brought in, and, um, uh, and it's a. This is a very common practice in management, and it's exquisitely useful uh, because there is nothing more that is going to tell you about who you are than an anonymous perspective from the people around you who are connect who are connected with yourself. It gives you a much much better appraisal of things, and it's a it's a sad thing I think that no, more people don't get an opportunity to be able to engage with it. Uh, but it is a it is a it is a wonderful opportunity for for change and for personal reflection.
0: Yeah, absolutely, for sure. Um, now, I guess, how does an individual's personality affect their personal development?
1: That's a hard question. It's um, because it comes to the problem that uh, a lot of people think about personality in the same way that they think about temperament. That mm-hmm. it doesn't change and the things that it does change is really slowly so personality development by definition is changing your personality it's learning to be more open learning to be more conscientious learning to be less neurotic all of these things are part of that Uh, if a person has a personality uh, which is in one dimension it doesn't necessarily need to matter but there is a subtle difference between personality and philosophy philosophy is the way you see the world and the way you think that the world is supposed to operate. If your philosophy is that your personality is who you are, that is everyone else needs to change, there's nothing wrong with me, then nothing is gonna change, for you at least. So, the, so personality development is related to personality but not so much, much more depend, dependent on your actual philosophy to life.
0: Right, yeah, that does um, explain things a lot better. That definitely aligns with what you've been talking about as well. Um, So I guess, talk about personality assessments. Mm -hmm. Um, First of all, what is a personality assessment? What kinds are available um, out there?
1: Okay, so there are more than 150 kinds of personality assessments out there, um, excluding the 3,000 that are on BuzzFeed. Uh, But uh, the... the uh the idea of the personality assessment is an extension from the greek ideas of choleric and sanguine through towards uh, freud's interventions in um, assessing how a person's personality was through the process of free association and then it came on towards his uh his former student um, carl jung who then Uh, talked about the idea that there were particular dimensions in a person's personality that could be actually tracked. Um, Things like intuition, uh, feeling, uh, four major characteristics that were associated with human qualities. Which is where one of the most common personality assessments that we have now, the Myers-Briggs Type Indicator, the MBTI, um, was based on. So it was based on Carl Jung's uh, teachings. Most of these personality inventories are of the same thing they're a question and answer um, uh, several questions which are asked of the individual um, and based on their responses from that to determine which personality subtypes that they would fit into the better ones tend to have something called the lie scale which is because a big problem that happens with these um, personality inventories is that they tend to we again because we tend to represent ourselves in the best way we tend to put down things inside there that uh, that we worry about how it might look to purposes. questions such as for example and i've just invalidated most of these just as a result of telling you this um do you sometimes have thoughts that you wish other people didn't know now the correct answer is yes because everyone has that But a person who is a bit worried about what their personality response is going to be is going to take no on that. Which comes up positive on a lie scale, which then later on is identified as meaning that the entire um, exercise is probably uh, not accurate. So they have different tricks like that to try to encourage honesty, try to encourage an honest appraisal about how the person is viewing themselves. And then going into the different subtypes, so we have the MBTI, uh, the Minnesota multiphasic personality inventory is another very large, very popular one, Hogan's personality inventory, um, and, and and several others. So the most of the research has centered around something called the big five, uh, which are five personality traits. Um, and these are neuroticism, extroversion, openness, agreeableness, and conscientiousness. So, the so these were ar- arisen at factor analysis from several different personality inventories, and has been remarkably robust. Uh, it has uh, because the um, the the MBTI has sixteen personality subtypes, um, and people have always had this problem about: do we define personality in terms of type or in terms of dimensions? That is, um, are you an extrovert or are you this percentage extroverted? Hence the difference between okay. a, a state type or a dimension type. Uh, mm-hmm. The big five is a dimension type analysis um, and spits out your personality onto uh, five components. Very, very accurate, uh, very consistent, and uh, the, the challenge with it is that it's quite broad. It doesn't seem to carry too much through towards things like occupational appropriateness, um, but the, the value of it is the stability of the readings. Multiple, uh, multiple assessments of personality using the Neo Five Factor Model uh, have, been, have been quite consistent. Which is why the Hogan's Personality Inventory was developed. Uh, so that was in a, so that was originating from Big Five, but then also through towards looking at occupational appropriateness, such as whether a person would do well in a, a high stress environment, in a low supervision environment, those sorts of factors. Uh, and that's where the the Hogan Inventory has been so strong. Now, the the uh, the interesting thing that comes from this is there's always the debate, and it will probably never be assessed as to Do any of these things actually mean anything? The individual practitioners of all of these personality assessments have extremely good evidence that they can cite about why you should be using theirs. The problem is that all of them are very good at showing the evidence about why they should use theirs and no one else's. So whenever I try to look at the evidence from outside, it's really hard for me to try to tell the difference. I like the ones which talk about um, occupational exposure. I like the ones which use um, psychodynamic um, teachings because we know that that is historically the most accurate in terms of evaluations of personality. I dislike anything that tells me that this is my personality, this is who I am, and this will not change. That is a big problem uh, because that's not true. Um, personality always always changes, but it the personality test tells you where you are right now. The really big problem is that almost all of these personality tests rely on self-report. So it's what I think, and we've already established at the beginning of this podcast, what I think is a very small component of every, everyone else's. So, yeah. which is why when I went through executive coaching myself, um, I did a pen and paper test, which was which was interesting. It, 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 it identified some things uh, about myself um, that uh, that from a bird's eye view was useful in terms of my own planning. Uh, But at the end of the day, it was based on my own report. So it was a rephrasing of ideas that I already had, which comes back to, which comes actually incidentally back to Freud. You, You might remember that I talked about Freud's initial statements of personality being based on free association. Now, free association is the practice of sitting down with a therapist, having an open forum where you can talk about absolutely anything. And the beauty of free association is that because the patient can talk about absolutely anything, whatever they talk about tends to be things that are particularly significant to them. And in analyzing why they are talking about particular things, that helps the patient to understand themselves better. So in a roundabout way, even though all of these tests are based on self-report, that's not actually a terrible thing. It's a very similar thing to what may be happening, but in a much more highly structured format towards Freud's old free association But it's an incomplete part of the picture. We still need to have the perspective of what other people think about us. So these things will help us in terms of trying to uh, understand what the individual personality assessment is. The, um, uh, and they are still very highly contested. Um, at, the, um, at my university, I remember, um, we were... Contacted by Human Resources, asking us about which personality assessment tools we thought were appropriate to use for screening uh, students when coming into our, our faculty, and the resounding statement from all of the psychiatrists was, "No, they're all crap. None of them mean none of them mean anything." Uh, the resounding statement from all the psychologists was, "Yes, they're amazing, but there were a huge amount of differences. Which one to actually use?" Right. course Br- briefly. All of them are kind of correct um there is value in a self-report personality uh, inventory there is uh certainly value in the perspectives of others people are not other people are not necessarily right and i certainly would not trust the opinion of one individual but i would trust the opinion of several uh of my of, of my peers and non-peers in terms of what they think uh, about who i am as a person and that together with information that i would be getting from one of these pen and pencil inventories is going to be is is going to be helpful. I've only talked about personality types, however, not personality disorders. But in the field of personality types, um, uh, these, these these practices are are, are useful, um, are interesting, and uh, and and great for personal development. There is the thing that development means that you have it as a uh, as a thing for reflection and considering uh, what uh, interventions and what uh, and uh, courses and experiences you want to put yourself through in order to further develop. One of the biggest things about many of these things in uh, many of these personality assessments is that people use them as a sort of badge of honor. I went through the MBTI and it's identified that I am the highest. Uh, I am the um, uh, E T X. Uh, R or something, which is the 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 natural born leaders. Um, okay. So right, yeah. which led to this lovely trend of all these, um, particularly coming out and like the cliches coming out of Harvard resumes, together with the the four letter code for what my personality is. Uh, therefore, guaranteeing that you must hire me. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's in practice. That's how it ends up being used. Uh, it's not supposed to be, and therein is therein is just one part of the controversy.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, there's, I I guess, so much there and that um, one of my questions was actually going to be about, you know, um, stuff like tests like the MBTI does kind of sometimes categorize you into 16 types. I mean, I think the most popular website to test for MBTI is called 16 personalities, which in itself implies that that's all there is. Um, Well, the reason why there are
1: 16 personalities is because there are four components and the four mm-hmm. components are taken out of Jung's uh, Jung's ideas. So the four components go into a four by four grid, which is why you end up with sixteen. Um, so it's yep, not science, sure. it's math.
0: It's math, right, Gotcha. Um, how do how do these personality assessments, you know, where do they become most useful? Um, where do you see them kind of most beneficial?
1: I found them most useful in the way that I use them. Which is with a coach who helped me with interpreting what they meant and going on towards a longer term plan. So, when I was trying to plan out my career at that stage, um, this identified to me what my um, goals and uh, interests were and had me realize that there are, that regardless of the choices I make, there is always going to be some part of me which is disappointed. So, you then go towards what parts are core and what parts are not not going to be feasible and the and also it helped me with thinking that if i'm in this kind of a way what kind of a person do i want to be and that's where it was more useful so you use it as a springboard towards your planning. Um, you do need someone to help you through the process. It doesn't need to be a highly paid organizational psychology coach, but it could be a trusted friend whose perspective you also respect. Um, a mentor, a person who is able to reflect back to you about what it is. I certainly wouldn't do it on its own. I wouldn't right. have the perspective of this on its own because it requires perfect, good planning. And the and a, uh, a measured and balanced approach to the information that you get from the personality test. Um, otherwise, it, otherwise, uh, what is much more likely is that you'll do the whole test and say, oh, how wonderful is that? I'm amazing. That yeah. was no point. It's just feeding your ego. Uh, it has to be something which is going to lead towards uh, development of yourself and your purpose in terms of uh, the impact that you're going to make towards the rest of the world and why you want to make that impact. And towards understanding uh, yourself, and yourself is not just your personality; it is also your philosophy. It is also your your experiences. And um, the uh, there uh, there is no end of work out there on personal development. And one of the unfortunate, challenging things is that most of the personal development stuff talks about how can I maximize my achievement in a capitalist society, and in uh, and the great thing about personality theory and thinking about your personality is that because you think explicitly about how you relate to other people, you come to another dimension of humanity, which is not just about achievement. It is about quality of interpersonal relationships. And the connections that we have with other people, these are, and this is evidence-based, these make much more of an impact to quality of life than, than the, the tallest tower that you can build. Um, it is the quality and sustainability of our friendships, our partners, um, a, our families, uh, that is what leads towards um, better, longer-term functioning. Mm-hmm. But of course, you know, you can't, you can't um, put that on a, you, you can't put that on the front of Dimex as a, a bestseller. Spend more time with your family and uh, have a more rounded worldview. That doesn't sell as well.
0: I feel like if you worded it in an incredibly simplistic way, maybe maybe it could. But I find a, a nuanced perspective far more interesting, personally. Yep.
1: Yeah. Yeah. because it's about it is about nuance. There is no grand, wonderful, um, simplistic idea for how we are supposed to live life. It is it is complicated. It's about understanding ourselves. It's about understanding why we do things. It's about recognizing change. Uh, and it's hard to appreciate change in yourself. Um, you only realize that further down the track. And I am much more aware of what an idiot I was uh, 10 years ago, as well as 20 years ago. Uh, and I'm sure that uh, in 10 or 20 years time from now, that 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 me is going to be looking back at who I am and thinking, uh, thinking about how ridiculous I was at this stage as well. When it comes back towards uh, literature, and I'm glad that you had that uh, point at the beginning, um, there is the, the beautiful play Krapp's Last Tape, K R A P P, uh, S, which talks about an individual towards the end of his life who has made a recording of himself every year and is basically just sitting down and playing them, listening back to who he was. And it's a beautiful statement on personality. It's a statement or uh, he, he listens to how his own attitudes, perspectives, and sense of self has changed over the, over the decades um and uh, and how he and how he himself has changed uh, through to the present time it's a it's a somber point but the the message of hope that comes out of that is that if we are capable of change we are capable of change for the better
0: yeah, for sure. That's a beautiful statement, and a beautiful statement to end um, that section on. Um, I might now move on to our practice slash habit experiment debrief. Unfortunately, there's no unawkward way to transition <laughs> between that and, and the next, the next part. Um, but uh, I I want to now try and put everything that we talked about into some form of practice that the audience can walk away with. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Professor J. Singham, what is a practice that you do um, to improve yourself, to understand yourself better, to understand your personality better?
1: Um, in the book Momo, uh, there, is a, uh, there is a character in the book uh, who is a hairdresser uh, who has a fairly average life, um, doesn't do terribly well for himself, but is happy enough and has friends and family and does one thing every day. Um, every day, he sits by his windowsill and thinks back over the day's events uh, for five minutes. And he inspired, his, this literary character inspired me. And I try to do that every day, um, just to think back about what uh, all the day's events as, a, as an opportunity for, for reflection and an opportunity for quiet. That practice I find has been amazingly helpful because it's about clearing the mind, it is meditative, but it's also about organizing into priority what stressed me out, what I thought was important, and how I felt about the day as a whole. And, it's, it's a, and doing that as a moment of quiet has been a really helpful practice for myself. The second practice point, however, I would consider to be much more important, and that is uh, morning coffee with my wife. And we have very busy lives, but for 15 minutes every morning, uh, before the kids have woken up and there is no one else around, um, we sit and have coffee together. And anything gets discussed, anything gets, gets talked about. Everything from the day's uh, school pickups uh, through to... Um, how I have how I have uh, been going in a particular direction at work, or what I was try- what my latest project was that I was trying to do, and why I was trying to do that, and it's by far the most valuable time of my day because um, it is about maintaining that relationship and working on that but it is also with the view towards uh, reflecting back on myself and how I have changed and what my priorities are and what I'm trying to be doing. The I think that every person should have two similar uh, daily experiences, a, an opportunity for quiet at the end of the day to reflect on the day that has gone through and a meaningful regular conversation uh, with a trusted person uh, whose opinion you respect regarding the universe the world and yourself so those are the two those are the two practices that i have found to be um the 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 most um the most beneficial in my in my uh regular life and uh, i hope that you find something similar for yourselves
0: absolutely you were just saying that uh, you don't think you can make a book out of it but i feel like you've just got two things there that you can very easily turn into a book
1: it's a very short Um, book
0: it would be pretty short, but I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure we could. Uh, I'm sure that would sell better um, in that case. Um, what are What are kind of some of the challenges for you um, when trying to make time for for both of these?
1: That was one of the things that the personality inventory gave me that was helpful. Um, it mm-hmm. recognized for it recognized for me that I have a uh, so in my personal in my personality assessment. Um, uh, I found that I had a particular creative bent, which is difficult to maintain in academia and in psychiatry. But it was a big part of why no matter what I was doing, I had an element that I wasn't fully satisfied with. It goes into towards uh, the, 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 broader, the broader question in terms of what one does with life is probably better explained with things like um, Ikigai, uh, the, the Japanese uh, concept of uh, organization of life recognizing that in life you have careers, vocations, um, hobbies, all sorts of different things for different reasons. And we would like to imagine that our job gives us everything, but our job requires us to be doing something that, well, what we do as human beings is something that we're good at, that is good for society, that you make an income out of, that you are happy doing. And it's really rare that something ticks all four of those boxes. So the benefit of that personality inventory for me was to realize that I am not going to be fully satisfied with everything. So I have to, if there's something that I have to be doing, then I have to work out when and where I'm going to be doing it as well as recognize that if I, the more that I invest into that, the less I will have for everything else. So it's about prioritizing, recognizing that there are things that I have to let go, but also that there are more practical ways to achieve the things that I want to be doing. So as a result of that, for example, I'm a part-time writer, but I'm a prim- primarily a clinical psychiatrist because I much more enjoy the act of talking to and looking after patients compared to everything else that I do. There are many other things that I do enjoy doing. I enjoy teaching, I enjoy education, but that's my highest priority, at least with regards guys who work. So that's how I sort of organize myself in terms of uh, what I'm what I'm doing. It came out of uh, very good support. Uh, It also came out of um, making sure that I had regular opportunities for reflection and introspection.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, How do you feel that this practice has impacted your perception in life?
1: Um, It's probably reduced my productivity uh, it's uh, probably I'm probably not making as much money as I could have out of it uh, because it's forced me to have a more rounded perspective to the world. It's made me um, having to do things like uh, prioritizing the uh, the value of my uh, family, the um, the the goals and opportunities that I have, my responsibility towards others, my uh, responsibility and interest in myself. It's forced me to sort of realign them better so i'm not as rich um i am happier
0: yeah yeah it's like you said um productivity is essentially a capitalistic goal and capitalistic goals are not necessarily the only path to happiness and self-fulfillment
1: it is it's a it's a useful framework um and Mm -hmm. it is a very powerful economic frame it's a very powerful economic framework uh but it doesn't it doesn't cover everything there is a lot of things that we can do that, um, that are essential for us as human beings that lead to a better world that do not make us money. Um, yeah. And it's about finding a, a good balance, realizing that there's always going to be a level of compromise. Uh, but uh, the more of these things that you can potentially do, uh, the better life can be.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Wonderful answer and a wonderful practice, um, to recommend. So thank you so much. I'm sure the audience is definitely going to get something out of that. Um, for sure. I might move on now to our open mic, um, in which I let you have a mini Ted talk about whatever you feel that you wanted to discuss at this point. Um, so professor Jay Singham, what did you want to talk about during this segment? So at
1: the, uh, At the age of 30, I had a serious health issue. Um, The details don't really matter. It's just a possibility that I was potentially about to die. Uh, And at the time, I was told that I had a roughly 10% risk of death uh, over the next um, five years. Uh, And I remember that my doctor reassured me, telling me that um, it's only about a 2% risk of death every year. Uh, So that's all I had to worry about. Um, I also was thinking about the issue that I probably didn't have to worry about growing old either. Now, the thing is that we don't like to think of death. Um, In fact, there's very good research to explain a big part of that. We are potentially wired to avoid thinking about death. Uh, Dawes Ederman and his colleagues uh, back in 2019 did a study where they studied volunteers who were hooked up um, and looking at screens where a picture of a face would be put up as well as some image or concept that was related to death, such as the word funeral or burial, things like that. So after a while, the brain learned to create associations between uh, those uh, concepts, which led towards uh, a change in the electrical impulses that they could detect. And the thing is, they were able to uh, create associations unless the face was their own face. So Dawes Ziedemann's uh, volunteers were found that whenever their own face was put up, the brain refused to associate it with death. So death, basically, as far as the brain is concerned, is something that happens to other people. So we are possibly wired not to think about death. And this is a problem when it comes to age, because ageism uh, is the phenomenon of discrimination against older people. And uh, there's research from 2014 from Chonadi, which found that uh, people who were afraid of death were more likely to discriminate against older people. We call this something called terror management theory, which is that as a means of avoiding anxiety, you avoid anything that is to do with the idea of mortality, including older people. So if you discriminate against older people, you try to avoid anything to do with age, which means that you basically don't have a plan for how you're supposed to grow old it does the question about what an old person is in the first place Um, you can blame the Germans for this one Um, so it uh, so a German Chancellor uh, came up with the world's first national pension system um, and he initially wanted the age to be 70 but this was refined down to what 65 which is why to this day we tend to think about 65 as being the age of um, aging Uh, The thing is that he came up with this in 1889 when life expectancy was approximately 39. So since then everyone thinks about 65 and older as being old. Um, And and a a study from the Australian Human Rights Commission in 2013 found that if you take a group of people under the age of 50 and ask them what old was, they said it was anyone who was 65 and older. You took anyone who was above 50 they wouldn't like to say that. They tended to say things like a person who retires or goes into a nursing home, some sort of socioeconomic milestone that they hadn't yet achieved. So what are we supposed to do as we get older? Um, that was a, uh, the very first study of uh, social theory of aging was something called disengagement, from, uh, which was uh, proposed in coming by 1961. It was the idea that people gradually withdraw from others for the benefit of the individual and society. Everyone hated this idea. Because it sounded like we were, it sounded like uh, Cumming was endorsing uh, geriatric depression, except the problem is that this was based on data from the Kansas City Study of Adult life. so it's an observational study. It was Havighurst who came up with the idea of activity theory in 1963 in response to the agitation from this uh, theory of aging, uh, which then uh, led to the idea that for growing older, we need to be as active as possible, which is a which is an aspirational model. It's a nice thing. But it led to lots of uh, promoted studies about people like seniors climbing mountains and winning weightlifting champions and dancing and things like that, which is great, which is amazing achievements. But this was held up that every senior is supposed to be doing. And most people just simply can't do that. This is uh, setting up outliers as being the reason for why we'd be doing things. So aging itself has actually changed. The uh, The average life expectancy in Australia in 1951 was 69. Uh, today it's 82. So everyone right now who is over the age of 65 is older than their parents ever was. So they are currently living without a map. They have no idea what they're supposed to be doing apart from life is supposed to end when you're 65, which is nonsense, which is never yeah. the case. Now this is their, their issue. The next thing is going to be for us. And it's a, quite a difficult challenge for the psychologists and sociologists have uh, trouble answering. But there is another study that I'd bring through, which is the Harvard study of aging, because this was looking at, so it, they studied about 724 individuals over 60 years, um, and tracked them over a very long, uh, and currently the study has expanded to more than 300, in, uh, 3000 individuals. Um, they found something consistent, anything that older people did involving transmitting knowledge to the next generation was associated with happiness. So they use happiness as their benchmark for what you should be doing in in, in aging. And why this is so important is that this is an incontrovertible social role for older people that is associated with mutual satisfaction. It's not about withdrawing and giving up, but it's also not about climbing mountains. It's about very simply having the knowledge you have and transmitting it to the next generation. Which is part of why myself and some colleagues founded Wisdom Connect. Uh, so Wisdom Connect is a video conferencing based facility for all the people to be able to communicate with each other but also with the next generation in terms of being able to transfer their knowledge on towards uh, others. Uh, we know that late life is a challenge. We know that the older person today has very little clarity about what they're supposed to be doing. But we know that the older person has life experience and that's, that's absolutely certain. And we know that they are incredibly valuable as a result of that. So the research that I had done had prompted me towards um, setting up this charity. Uh, I'd be very uh, appreciative if you would consider checking out www.wisdom-connect.com to be able to have a look at what we're trying to do. And uh, we also have a panel coming up in the recent um, uh, Vivid Sydney panel for discussion of this as well. Uh, But yeah, thank you for uh, giving me the opportunity to talk about aging, death, and the meaning of life
0: no absolutely thank you very much for sharing that with us uh we'll make sure to have a link uh to wisdom connect uh and its website in uh the description um and for anyone who is in sydney for vivid uh definitely check that out as well uh but thank you um professor jessica for joining us i really really appreciated the conversation i've had with you today i've learned so much from you Uh, where can people find you
1: so my personal website is on cornertreepractice.com That is Sorry, I'll do that again So my personal website is cornertreepractice.com.au That's C-O-R-N-E-R-T-R-E-E-P-R-A-C-T-I-C-E Um I have a LinkedIn page as well on LinkedIn slash Neil J. Singham That's uh, N-E-I-L-J-E-Y-A-S-I-N uh, G A M, um, and uh, I look forward to hearing from yourselves uh, in terms of um, engaging with my charity or in terms of uh, discussing all things personality.
0: Absolutely, uh, I'm sure people will uh, be checking you out further after this episode airs. Thank you so much for chatting with me today. I've had an amazing time.
1: No, not as good as my not as good as the time as I had. Thank you so much for this opportunity, Aditi
0: Thank you very much. You've been listening to Self-Improvement Atlas, the personal science insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. For more episodes like this from 10 different life management perspectives, search LMSL on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, so you can get updated on everything we have to offer. We have a wide range of topics readily available for you to check out. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating our show, sharing it, and subscribing to our channel, as it helps us grow and bring you more quality resources. More of our work can also be found on our website at pe.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Aditi Kutti. Thanks for tuning in.